Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about what civic and political engagement means to them and how they're involved in their communities. Yeah, and uh, this week we realized was the first time somehow that we've had a social worker on the show. How is that possible? Yeah, we talked explicitly about social work and social work practice. And I just... I don't understand how... I don't understand either, given the the sheer amount of social workers I know. (laughs) You do! (laughs) This is the first time we've explicitly talked about social work. Uh, But it is a, I think, really fascinating episode. One of the things I really enjoyed about it is talking about this idea of, right, the holistic approach to helping people, recognizing that folks that are in need, that there isn't, right, this just pinpoint thing that may be the source of, uh, of, of problems that they're experiencing in their daily life, that you actually have to look um, holistically at what it is that these uh, individuals are going through as, in a way to kind of best assist them. Yeah, absolutely. And then having conversation around all the different kind of, especially since the person we're talking with, uh, Christy, we're talking with, has worked in multiple social work roles, right? And so the intersection of social work and nonprofits, thinking about foundations and funding and government, uh, government funding and thinking about policy. And I just, so, so many pieces of the conversation came together in this episode that I, I'm really excited about having everyone listen to it. It's, it's a really holistic view of thinking about <laughs> civic engagement and political engagement. And also a good chance for me to give a shout out to my favorite social work, Jana. Of course, who's definitely listening. She definitely is. Well, we're really excited to have with us today, Christy Andresik. Christy Andresik is a licensed independent social worker with a background in community-based services and nonprofit management. She's worked in a variety of nonprofit settings, including serving as associate director of a neighborhood center, and most recently as a program officer for community responsive grant making at the Cleveland Foundation, where her work on LGBTQ issues gained statewide and national recognition. Christy, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Christy, now, I mean, spoiler alert for our audiences, and we try to always divulge this. We we know you, so this isn't our first time meeting you. You do. That's um, true. But it is for our audience. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, before we get started? Sure. So as Ashley said uh, in my lovely bio that you guys did for me there, um, so I am a social worker by background. I'm a licensed social worker, and I spent a lot of years working in uh, community settings. So I worked at a neighborhood center for a really long time. And in that role, I always I always like to talk a little bit about my time there because in that role is really where I got to see um, community-based service delivery sort of at, at every level. 
in a nonprofit, right? So starting from working very directly with clients, doing parent education programming, doing family programming. I would be there until late at night scrubbing dishes in the kitchen after a family program that we would do, you know, events that we would do. I drove the the vans and went and picked up teen parents and their kids and did field trips all the way up, you know, starting from, from that and doing that really direct service, that that really hands-on kind of service all the way up through by the time that I left, I was the associate director and doing things like running payroll and submitting, you know, our monthly reimbursement requests for our many, many, many different funding sources, whether they were, you know, childcare vouchers or grants through private foundations or grants through public sources like county funding, um, county funding, things like that. Uh, while one finds out in a nonprofit such as that, you're doing all of those things while still washing dishes until nine o'clock at night and driving the van around and trying to just keep everybody, you know, alive and sane and keep the lights on. So, you know, I spent time doing that. And from that perspective, I really saw the, the needs of a community up front, as well as the needs of how nonprofits work and how marginalized nonprofits are in the larger sort of business world sector, right? The, the resources that a nonprofit has and the access to information is not the same as large corporate settings, right? So that really kind of stayed with me throughout my time as I moved you know, on into different jobs and sectors. I worked for a few years at the um, Cleveland school district doing um, family and community engagement work. And then I was a program officer at the Cleveland Foundation doing community responsive grant making where I had the opportunity to work with a wide variety of really large, really small nonprofits throughout Cleveland. And from that perspective, what was really cool about it was I got to have this bird's eye view, right, of how these things all connect and how they work together or don't. And I was able to carry with me that experience of being directly in a nonprofit, being uh, the person who is providing services or doing the management and knowing the reality of the way that funders speak, the way that funders think that you should be doing your job or the way they think you should be using your money is not reality, right? And being able to bring that forth into that position, I often found myself working in a way that I felt like I was almost a translator between what nonprofits are saying, what they need, what the funders want to hear, what they think they hear, right? And trying to be the bridge between those those two worlds, as well as helping. I really took this on as, as a goal of mine when I was in that role, helping nonprofits connect to each other. Because I remember sitting across the table from a funder who would always say the word that I hated. How are you collaborating? And I'm like, we are just trying to keep the freaking lights on, keep the vans running to pick up seniors so that they can come and have one meal for the day, make sure that the kids get picked up from school, right? What do you mean, how are we collaborating? And I realized that there are really great opportunities for nonprofits to collaborate, but somebody with more um, perspective outside of the four walls of the building that you're just trying to keep running, someone with more perspective and resources is the one that can be most helpful in seeing how things can actually coordinate and collaborate in a meaningful, useful way that doesn't just create more work for you as a nonprofit, but can actually move you forward and, and enrich what you're doing. I spent a lot of time trying to help build those connections between nonprofits where it was appropriate, not just because it sounded good to a funder. 
Now, Christy, I want to just backtrack a little bit just because I, I've noticed in the, in, you know, media lately that people are talking a lot about uh, maybe expanding roles of social Mm -hmm. workers or bringing social workers into policing. And I also realized I have so many friends that are social workers that I kind of took it for granted that, well, everybody knows what a social (laughs) worker is and what that means to be a social worker. What is, but a lot of people don't, what does that mean when you say, right, that somebody's a social worker? What does that actually like mean? I mean, that's the ultimate question, right? What, what is social work? We've just delved into a whole philosophical, you know, perspective here. So it's it's a really big question and it, it can be kind of contentious and murky sometimes, right? Because there is license, there are licensing standards. Um, I, you know, I am a licensed independent social worker. However, what that means for me versus any other one of my colleagues who are licensed social worker can look very different. The, the type of roles that we play, some social workers really operate very similarly to how a licensed counselor or a licensed therapist or a psychologist might operate, right? Some licensed um, social workers have a private practice and they're doing therapy interventions. Some folks are doing much more community-based settings where they're, you know, maybe going, uh, working with people in their homes, helping parents who have young children with, you know, developmental delays or behavioral challenges, or have experienced some kind of trauma, right, and working with the family on interventions to sort of stabilize, to help the the children. There's just such a wide variety of stuff that social workers do. It can become difficult to, to pin down. I think the foundational part that matters is this sort of underlying allegiance to the holistic person and person in context of environment, right? So what is going on with a person in context of their household, their family, their community, their, you know, their state, it's, you know, the, their government, like, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like what's going on with that person in, in environment and then how that manifests in many different ways. There are some social workers like myself who have done very little for many, many years, have done very little direct service and have done things that are more uh, macro level looking at, policies, systems, management, those types of things. And that's a perfect segue because you are currently a chapter fellow with the Northeast Ohio Scholar Strategy Network. What is the Scholar Strategy Network and how did you come to be involved in that type of work, especially with your background um, in social work um, and community practice? Yeah, so the the Scholar Strategy Network is um, a national network that the goal really is to connect scholars and academics and the work and the research that folks are doing, get it connected outside sort of the walls of academia, right? Really try to make it relevant. So connect that work and that research with journalists, with media platforms, um, and directly with policymakers so that policies will be informed by good, solid scholarly research. And so it's not very well built in from my perspective, right, to sort of the academic system in general, right? There's not a imperative or sometimes even an incentive to get that work outside of paywalls. You know, if it's published in a, in a journal and it's not then also talked about in some kind of more popular platform or a platform or a, a, a way that the general public or journalists or policymakers can access, can understand, can use, 
you know, from an academic perspective, uh, that's kind of okay, right? Like it's, it's, so it, it's not hitting the places that we need it to hit so that, that these things can be really well informed by good solid research. And so the Scholar Strategy Network is really working to tr- try to bridge some of that divide and really connect academics and scholars and their work with the community in, in those ways to have more informed policies. Um, and I got involved with the Northeast Ohio chapter when it got established a couple of years ago because I was fortunate enough to be working with some of the professors who had this on their radar and were the sort of uh, founding chapter leaders for the Northeast Ohio chapter. And I think, you know, because of my interest in in drawing these connections between lived experience and funding and policy and service delivery and all of these things and how we communicate and how we translate, that's that's sort of where I like to live. So it's it seemed like a pretty good fit um, for me to get involved. I should probably also just recognize that I'm involved with the Northeast Ohio SSN. Um, and so Christy and I also work um, together in that space as well. So, it, it, you know, I, she gets to <laughs> define it, <laughs> but we all, I'm also Absolutely. connected with it. So now uh, you also, so you've talked right, obviously about that you have this background in delivery of social services, but also in grant making. And you also tease this kind of uh, conflict that exists between these nonprofit organizations and then the foundations that offer funding for them. And I'm wondering, can you talk to us more about this relationship? I mean, is it is it contentious? Is it what what is kind of the nature of this relationship? And maybe it's just I don't know, very volatile and chaotic. But I, I'd love to hear from you about what what you see as the nature of yeah, this relationship. You know, I think. It's that 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 sort of tired trope of, you know, if you know one foundation, you know one foundation, right? Every foundation is, is different and unique. Um, and unfortunately, it, unfortunately or fortunately, probably more unfortunately, it, it's pretty true, right? Because it, it does make it a little bit difficult for nonprofits to consistently uh, know how to approach any given foundation, know what that relationship is going to look like or uh, yeah, that relationship, right? Like you said, if it's going to be contentious or if it's going to be something that really is truly collaborative in nature and a value add. You know, foundations are are there to to funnel these charitable dollars and, and money back into the nonprofit sector. Every foundation is set up. Some are community foundations, which are, are public. Some are private and they come from family money or they come from corporate money. And they all sort of set their own pet interests, right? So there might be a foundation that like all we care about is early childhood um, education. Some foundations are completely focused on the arts or on the environment or on animals or, you know, very, very narrow. Like we're only interested in theater, but specifically, uh, you know, women in theater in uh, New York City. You know, there can be really, really specific sort of narrow focuses, which means that there's lots of opportunity for nonprofits to find foundation dollars and grants that might match what they do. It's also a really, really large kind of marketplace to navigate um, and manage. And then every grant that you get, that's a relationship that you're managing, right? That's reporting requirements that are going to be wildly different depending on what foundation you, you receive that grant from. That might be a relationship that you're managing with a program officer, like the role that I used to play. Or you may not have a face-to-face relationship with somebody. Some foundations are 
very involved to the point of micromanaging. Um, they'll bring a whole bunch of folks, their whole board they'll bring to your nonprofit and tour your nonprofit and want to see what you're doing and want to, you know, see clients and all of these types of things. Others are more hands off. Unfortunately, there's not enough foundations that provide dollars that are just general operating, right? That I think is the biggest point of tension, I would say, between nonprofits and, and the funding world is that funders tend to want to have more control over what are you using this dollar for and why and how and have you reported it and what's your outcome and can you put a measurable deliverable on that outcome and what's your percentage of change and blah, blah, blah. Whereas the reality is nonprofits just need money to be able to be flexible, to be able to respond to what's happening in their community, to be able to respond to any given thing that's going on in their nonprofit or with their their clients or the issues that they work on. And finding those flexible dollars is not easy. Now, I'm curious, I mean, does this result in nonprofits either, you know, pursuing uh, you know, activities that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise just because the funder really likes it? Um, or, or does it does it also result in them, you know, seeking just outcomes that are measurable despite the fact that maybe there are outcomes that aren't measurable that would be more impactful, right, on the communities that they serve? Right. So it's all of the above, right? So I think that we have... There are definitely times where a nonprofit is kind of lulled into mission creep. There's a certain, and it's not just sort of the, the private foundation world. It's also definitely public funding. Public funding has, you know, significantly changed how a lot of organizations exist. The settlement house movement, which is near and dear to, to my heart because I worked at that neighborhood center for so long. The settlement house movement started with private dollars that were super flexible, right? It was these endowments and these these dollars that were whatever is going on in these communities, whatever uh, the needs are, however it changes, whatever's going on, those dollars could be used to do what folks needed done. But then as more sort of public dollars would come online, well, you can get this, you know, county level grant or state level grant or whatever the case may be to provide this service to seniors, to provide this um, child care service to children this age with all of these various different requirements. It really started to take these otherwise just very holistic, very flexible services and kind of cut them up into this funding stream for this client, this funding stream for this service. And with that happening, there are definitely times where there will be a gap, right? Where all of a sudden, well, this this kind of public entity or this private foundation is tired. Like this private foundation wants something new and flashy. They've given us this grant for five years. It's not interesting anymore. They want something new and interesting. The problem is, is that the issue we're working on or the population we're working with, systemically, the world has not changed where that issue has gone away or that need has been met, but it's so suddenly not interesting. So now we have to package it differently to make it look different to you, make it seem interesting. Or, you know, things change with who's in charge at, at uh, various levels with the public dollars. So now we no longer have this funding stream for, you know, uh, youth experiencing homelessness. Instead, we have dollars for uh, trying to engage youth in the workforce, right? So now you try to like still serve those same clients, but sort of package it differently and kind of call it something different. And so it does result in a lot of, I think, inefficiency. And it results in a lot of nonprofits sometimes moving outside of what they normally or what they really could or should be doing really well, 
or sometimes they're still doing it, but they're just really working hard to package it and, and brand it in the way that the funders want it to be branded. Yeah. So I'm familiar with some of the research in this area mm-hmm. from like people like Theta Scotchball who talks about, right. So the, that funding can really shape what nonprofits are doing and they move away from some of those things that were part and parcel of what made them mm-hmm. community-based or in some ways even interested in, in policy, whether that was local, state, or federal, right? So there's quite a bit of literature that's, you know, that's out there on that these funding pressures, whether it's, you know, government pressures or private funders, is also shaping nonprofits' role mm-hmm. in kind of this policy space that in, in terms of how much they feel like they can be involved in things like advocacy or even lobbying. And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, that space and, and nonprofit advocacy um, and how that's related? And, and if you think it's necessarily related to these kind of funding pressures. Yeah. First off, I think no, a lot of nonprofits don't realize just how much room they have to engage in advocacy. There's also this, uh, there, there's this understandable fear that a lot of nonprofits have that they think they're going to cross this line that's going to, you know, get them in trouble with even just their, their C3 status, their, their basic nonprofit tax status, right? That, that there's a lot of nonprofits that are very hesitant. They're, they're concerned that they're going to cross some line there, or they have either explicit and very real reasons to believe that their funders will have a problem with them engaging in advocacy, or they just get the impression that their funders may not be cool with it. Or they just don't want to go there and have them find out later that their funders aren't cool with it, right? All of these are understandable reasons, but I think end up restricting nonprofits from engaging just as much as they really can in advocacy, as well as sort of being that bridge to help be a vehicle for their clients to engage in advocacy and organizing and movement building. It seems that nonprofits are... It doesn't seem. It's true that nonprofits have been professionalizing. Um, You know, even the fact that social work is a you know recognized profession with licensure and and all of this stuff around it versus these sort of big, large movements that we used to see of folks uh, volunteering, organizing, bringing together all of these sort of uh, people powered hours of of work and and insights and resources and knowledge together. Now, so much of that has been cut up into these like very specific, very formalized roles that somebody who is receiving a paycheck is the one now expected to do the work of what used to be the work of dozens and dozens of, you know, community folks coming together for a a like-minded cause. And I think that combination of that professionalization of the sector with these sort of misconceptions and concerns about how much can we engage in advocacy without, you know, running into trouble really has restricted the nonprofit sector's engagement in advocacy. There are restrictions on lobbying, but lobbying is a very, very specific form of advocacy, right? And and, and it's small and nonprofits can lobby, but there are some restrictions on that and it's small. But advocacy is so much larger than just lobbying. Advocacy is just making, you know, your view known on any issue. And that's really broad, And that's advocacy. And I know that sometimes nonprofits and sometimes folks even working in foundations will just call it something else to avoid the whole issue of uh, maybe your 
board members from the, the, the foundation, maybe your uh, executive director at the nonprofit, to avoid them red flag triggering that, oh, no, 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 what are we doing? What are we getting involved with advocacy or what are we funding advocacy for? You just start calling it something else like, you know, community education, community outreach. Half the time your community outreach and education is advocacy. Now, so we had a guest on previously, and I'm not going to out who it was, but who who had bemoaned the fact that they they didn't, the board of their nonprofit didn't want to put out a statement regarding regarding the Black Lives Matter and uh, because that wasn't the focus, right, of their of their nonprofit. And and you kind of get the sense, right, if you listen to enough news coverage that there's this fear of, right, what so-called cancel culture, right, that, oh, well, you're, you're going to give that nonprofit a bad name and, oh, well, people aren't going to want to, they, they like what you originally do, but they're not going to stand for this. I mean, what can funders do actually signal to these nonprofit organizations, hey, what mm-hmm. your advocacy efforts are important. Uh, we think that, right, these are within bounds. Maybe this isn't within bounds. I mean, is there anything that they can do to kind of clarify that relationship so that nonprofits do feel uh, more freedom to kind of go out and engage in advocacy that is really important? Absolutely. Funders can play a major role in that. First of all, do the thing yourself that you want your nonprofits to feel comfortable doing, right? Put out those statements. Be very explicit about your support for issues. You know, be out in front putting out a statement in support of Black Lives Matter this way that you know that you are signaling now to your nonprofits and to the community at large that this is a a good, acceptable, and encouraged thing to do. Right. Make sure that that is very explicit. Absolutely. That that's a leadership tone that can be set. It's a culture shifting tone that can be set, especially for some of these bigger foundations that hold a lot of sway and hold, you know, their reputation is is very powerful as well as their dollars. So that's one thing. Also, just being really explicit in the relationship directly with nonprofits, this letting, you know, letting nonprofits know this is something that we we fund, we encourage, we support, we're cool with. And then just back to the basics of just give general operating dollars, right? Don't even get into the weeds of, are you advocating? Are you this? Are you making statements? Are, just give general operating dollars and say that it's for the reason that you, uh, we, we trust that you as a nonprofit, you are closer to the issue than we are. You are more able to serve the needs of this community, this population, whatever. And therefore, we're going to give you flexible dollars to do what you believe you need to do to get it done. Yeah, I mean, you got to wonder if, if these foundations uh, that are micromanaging think that they know the mm. issue so well, why are they funding a nonprofit to actually do the work? Okay, I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to I talk about a different part of the nonprofit advocacy discussion because, I mean, I think nonprofit advocacy is just a complicated mm. issue, right, from a funding perspective, from a management perspective, from a legal perspective, but there's also kind of considerations around what, who the organization is and who the organization is representing in some way. So you wrote a paper and I believe it was with Professor Joe Mead, who happened to have been a previous guest on uh, the podcast, um, that was titled Know Me Before You Speak For Me. Can you talk us through that paper a little bit and, and kind of the 
implications of what y'all are talking about? Yeah. So that paper came about in a somewhat unexpected way. Um, It was a really interesting journey. So I was working with with Joe Mead as uh, his graduate assistant, and he brought to me this sort of case study of um, a nonprofit executive who spent a week truly immersed um, with his clients. He kind of went undercover and we're, we're hearing a little bit more and more about some of this stuff happening now, but um, he went undercover and lived among his clients who were, who were living unhomed. And he, he took these sort of detailed journal notes about his experience and what it was like. And, you know, and so Joe brought it to me and he was like, we need to put this in context of the literature. You know, we don't really know what this is, where this fits or how to contextualize it in the literature, but it's something, you know, and, so the more that I kept trying to, you know, what, what keywords do you even use to try to search to put something like that in context of, of the literature? And so the more we sort of worked through it and talked through it, you know, we, we really started to figure out this is an issue of representation because so much of what this particular person did was really starting, was really understanding from a very personal, very experiential standpoint what his clients were experiencing and how the service delivery was or was not happening in the way that he believed it was or was intending for it to happen. And so when he experienced that, then he was really vocal about talking about it, you know, publishing his, his journal um, notes in, in full, doing interviews with the media and really trying to make known what he learned from that experience. And so that's where we sort of said, well, we need need to sort of situate this in the the representation literature. And then from there, we decide, well, this this is something that gets you towards this substantive representation not just on the surface. It's not just that you reflect the, the, the folks that you're serving or that you reflect the issues that you're serving. It's, um, it's this, you, you know, something about the true substance of this issue that you are now proposing to speak on or act on or represent, you know, to a different audience. And I said, you know, there's lots of ways that that happens. It's just not necessarily labeled substantive representation. So I started, you know, just digging through what are all of these things that are happening in the nonprofit world that would get at that concept of really, truly knowing, deeply knowing an issue or a population. And what are the ways in which then sometimes nonprofits are are not representing on purpose, right? They're not even trying to label themselves as like, I am here as the spokesperson on behalf of, you know, fill in the blank. But the fact of the matter is, and the research supports this, that Nonprofits are seen that way, whether they're seeking to be that or not, right? Policymakers, public officials will tap a nonprofit to sort of be the, okay, great, now you're in the room, therefore we're covered on representing, you know, um, LGBTQ youth. Well, how do you know that that nonprofit representative truly does know the issues of LGBTQ youth? And so, you know, that's, that's where this paper really came out of. We started looking at all of the different ways in which we propose that we believe could be these mechanisms that nonprofits are learning about their clients. It doesn't mean that they're putting it into good use. It doesn't mean that they're communicating it well, but these are the mechanisms that we propose that we think nonprofits are using or could be using to truly know their clients. 
Yeah, I mean, I love that. I mean, isn't doesn't that really go back to the roots of the settlement house movement, though? Where I mean, that's what they did, right? Is they went in and said, okay, what are the yeah. actual conditions, right, that these folks are living in, and to find out, oh, it's, right. it's horrific. Right. Yeah, I mean, and and the the you know the folks the the women that founded the settlement houses that ran them that funded them lived there they lived there they lived among the folks that they were serving they did some of the you know early data collection they did you know mapping of issues and where are folks having access to services not having access to services what are the needs you know they did some of that really early work and it came from a truly immersed experience not sort of a quick observation or visit but a truly immersed experience now, I, I'm really curious, and I'll, we ask all of our guests on the Series 2 this question, uh, but I'm very curious to hear from you what your take is on this. Uh, what is it that, to you, it kind of encompasses these concepts of political and civic engagement? Uh, like, So personally, uh, professionally, what does that look like? And, and if you were to define an engaged citizenry, we changed that word, what do we change it? Populous, an engaged populace, what would you say that that would play? So I want to note for a moment, even just that, that, that you just mentioned that you changed it from citizenry to, to, to populace, right? That right there is a form of engaged activism. It's in form of a form of advocacy, right? Like you're using a platform that you have and being very intentional about language for a reason, right? I'm assuming that you changed that not for no reason, right? That there was a, there was an intention behind that. And I, I, you know, I, I think that a lot of times I see it in social work. I see it in nonprofits. There can almost be this sort of sense of like, advocacy and civic engagement, that's something that happens elsewhere by other people who know more than I do. People who are, you know, trained in this, people who know policy, people who are lawyers, people who are lobbyists, that's what they do. And we don't see ourselves in that role enough. We don't give ourselves enough credit or acknowledge that things like shifting your language is a form of advocacy because you are helping to shift how issues are seen, understood, believed, who sees themselves fitting in, who sees themselves excluded. It shapes how folks that do have the power to make decisions and shape things, how they are informed and how they start to view things. So all of these little things are absolutely civic engagement in my mind. And they are absolutely advocacy. Especially over the last few years, I think that there has been more and more there's been more interest, certainly, and in, like we have to have our voices heard. People need to be informed. And it's it's actually been getting under my skin just a little bit, kind of how many times we say, well, you have to be informed. People have to be informed. And what what bothers me about that is that it it almost comes with this, it's mostly unintentional, but it almost comes with this little bit of judgment or this little bit of like, if policies get passed that are going to make your life more difficult further your oppression, further your marginalization, it's a little bit on you because you weren't informed enough to know how, who, why, where, what to do about it, right? And it's a problem. It's a cop-out. It's it's not acceptable, right? If, if we're supposed to be in a representative democracy, we should feel comfortable that the folks that are supposed to be representing us to make policies know us well enough that they will then, in fact, go and act on our behalf and our best interests with a true understanding of, of what our lives look like and how the decisions that they make will change or impact our lives. And 
I don't think that it should be so intensely on every individual person, especially those who are most marginalized with the least amount of resources to then somehow be the most informed and provide like these like, you know, multi multi point like, uh, you know, one of the early um, criticisms uh, of Black Lives Matter is over and over like, what do they actually want, right? Like, what is their agenda? Like, how do they propose to change all this? You know, and while there are there are lots of, of activists out in front who who do have very detailed uh, policy recommendations, but they shouldn't have to, right? To be able to just speak up and say something is very wrong, I am going to speak up and tell you about my experience to bring you into my experience, so that you who don't live this experience can understand it enough to go and make policy decisions that are relevant and will impact this experience. That should be more than enough, right? If I'm doing that emotional labor and taking my time and my minimal resources to bring you into my world, that should be enough advocacy. I shouldn't have to also know the ins and outs of every, you know, how all of the, the dots connect between every elected official and how every policy and piece of legislation gets made. That's my thoughts on it. I don't know. <laughs> no, I was, <laughs> like, I was like, what do I, I don't. I don't have a response. Like, I love it. I, we've, we've also reframed instead of saying that we're educating people on things oh. that we're demystifying all of these things that are often like that. cloaked, right? Like who, what does an auditor do? Right. Like, <laughs> right. So who would think to even ask? I mean, there are probably people out there that think to ask. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely love that. I, I think it's so critical because, you know, I was definitely one of those people. I still feel like one of those people sometimes that is like, who who gave me the right to vote because I am not qualified, right? Like I go to the ballot box and I'm like, oh, who are these people? What are these positions? I don't know what this office does. Like who the heck thought that I should be able to decide, you know? And I just feel these, these moments of like, I am not qualified. And these moments of like shame and like panic where I'm like on my phone, like looking up, like, oh, what does the auditor do? You know? Um, And I think the more that we can break it down for folks to, this is how this impacts your life, right? If, if you ride the bus every day and you need somebody to understand that those bus stops are not in the right places, or, you know, this is, this is what happens when you're trying to get your kids from here to there. And, you know, you, you don't have a childcare near you, this, that, whatever, whatever your day-to-day life is, if you can have more information about who these magical elected people are that actually impact those things, I think that's what matters. People need to understand that stuff. They deserve, like we all have a right and deserve to understand how those things connect. And we shouldn't be expected to sort of do their jobs for them and come up with like their policy plan and their their point, you know, their list of bullet point recommendations. I appreciate that. So our last question is usually just the big question, like anything else that you have to add, things that you haven't talked about, words of wisdom that you want our listeners to walk away with? Well, I mean, I would say giving, you know, for folks out there that that might be listening that are nonprofit practitioners, whether you're in a direct service role or a management role, you know, stepping back and giving yourself credit for the advocacy that you do perform in your everyday life as well as holding yourself accountable to the fact that you are performing advocacy in your everyday life, in your work and in the way that you move in the world, right? You are in fact an advocate, you're a voice, you're a representative. So give yourself credit for it and also hold yourself accountable to the fact that that's a thing (laughs) that's happening, whether you mean to, whether you realize it, whether it's your intention or not, it's happening. Um, You know, that's one thing. And realize 
all of the different connections and nodes and, and, and places in which that occurs. So it may feel like, well, I'm direct service. I don't have a role in advocacy because I have to go through my supervisor. And every time I tell my supervisor, hey, we need these resources to get this done. Or like the way that you're telling me we're allowed to provide the service is so not the way that we need to provide the service. And you feel and think, I'm not doing advocacy because it stops at my supervisor and there's three more layers above them. And then there's funders above them. And then there's these policies at the, you know, there's public policies above them. It is in fact advocacy because the more that you push, strategically push, put yourself out there and it is, you are putting yourself on the line. It is a risk sometimes to really push your supervisor, but the more leverage you then give them, to push the person above them, who pushes the person above them, the more language you give them, the more you can frame the issue for them, right? Because otherwise those folks up in the boardroom are using some crazy language and they're seeing things in a way that is not reality. And it starts with every person who is as close to the issue as they can be doing the conscious work every day of framing it, bringing that reality of that experience to whoever they can and not thinking that like, well, I just, I can't do anything about it because I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, the Capitol and getting in front of Congress with, with my agenda. So I think that would be my biggest thing. Your interactions with your funders are advocacy. When a funder is like, we want you to do this this way. And you say, oh, that's really interesting. Here's how we see the issue. And sometimes being willing to leave money on the table, I think in, uh, in and of itself is advocacy saying, oh, thank you. But we simply cannot accept the dollars under those conditions because it is not within our scope to provide services in a way that we do not believe to be the, the best practice, right? That in and of itself is also advocacy. So just seeing all of those places where it happens. I love that. They, they should have more faith in themselves and their expertise. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, Christy, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and as always, my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is produced by David Yursa and edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about political and civic engagement.